morning, good afternoon, or good evening, listeners, and welcome to the latest installment of MBM's M&A Snack and Chat podcast. I'm Caroline Urban, director in MBM's London corporate team. I'm normally joined by Brian Shaw, corporate partner in MBM's London office, but in today's special episode, my co-host is Alex Lamley, director in our corporate team in our Edinburgh office and head of the MBM options team. Alex, thank you for joining me today. Nice, Caroline. It's good to be on the show. As our listeners know, we like to snack and chat in the show. So, Alex, what are you munching on today? Despite me trying to be on my best behavior and, and lose the pandemic weight, I actually went off in hunt of some, some nibbles and biscuits, and I've got a Viennese swirl. As I happen to be munching on a piece of apple strudel. Well, enough about the snacking. Today's uh, special episode is all about options. So, Alex, do you want to introduce our guest? Yeah, sure. Today, we've got the pleasure of having Charlie Blair with us. Charlie is currently the Managing Director of Gravitricity. Charlie's background is very much in the renewable sector. So, Charlie, welcome to the show. Very good to be here. Charlie, as you might have heard, snacking is the is always part of the introduction on the show. So what have you got your hands on today? I'm lower brow than you, you guys. I've got a, um, a Greg's. Uh, chocolate muffin. There's a Greg's around the corner from my my temporary office here in my in my sister's spare room. Brilliant. Well, I say let's let's jump straight in. Charlie, why don't you tell us a bit about the Charlie Blair story? Uh, sure. Well, the story goes all the way back to 1980 when I was born. But the interesting professional bit is I I have a geography degree, um, which is unexpected because I work in engineering, and almost every colleague I've ever worked with assumes I've got an engineering degree, but I haven't. <laughs> and then a technical master's from Imperial College. So I, I do have some of that technical stuff. I've now worked for the best part of 15 or 20 years in clean energy innovation of various sorts. Um, Alex mentioned the Carbon Trust. So I was on the government side of the fence doling out uh, government innovation funding uh, to innovative, innovative early stage energy technology companies. I'm now running an innovative early stage energy technology company um, and and trying to access uh, grant funding as well as the equity funding that the MBM have been helping us with. You're now with, with Gravitricity. How did that come about? How did you set up this fantastic company? I'm one of three co-founders of Gravitricity and Gravitricity is a, a mechanical energy storage technology company. We use gravity to store energy. We lift heavy weights to, to charge the system, lower heavy weights in underground shafts to discharge to the grid. Uh, the, the company was actually initially founded, invented, by Peter Frankel and Martin Wright. They've got a background in tidal energy. They founded the company, the two of them, in 2011 and submitted the first patents. And I came along and was the, the young gun whose job it was to make things happen, uh, to get some funding, to actually build a team. We got funding in. I had a job, uh, which has been sometimes paid and sometimes not in the early days. <laughs> but since late 2016, we recruited two members of staff. We're now on 11 members of staff and I've had a, a steady paycheck, I'm pleased to say, for at least the last two years and, and hopefully will do for several several more now. We're based here in Edinburgh we've, and we've just built a 250 kilowatt concept demonstrator, a big heavy machine, which is doing what it's meant to do, which is validate our engineering simulations and, and get people interested, including investors. It must be so exciting to come to a business that has a, a patent ready and a kind of product in the making that you can then just exploit yeah well that makes it sound a lot simpler and easier than it has been <laughs> i have to say the, the patents 
is always the case with patents. They're not nearly as black and white as you think, and, mm. and you increase your patent portfolio. It's very useful having an early one uh, because it gives you a, a clear license to operate. But in some senses, it's not necessarily any more useful than that. Uh, and likewise, the product was very far from ready to go. These are big like infrastructure projects that will be 10 to 20 million euros. We have front-end engineering design and detailed design to do before we build the first commercial full-scale system. So. And part of that process, I guess, is being able to build a team quite early on that can help develop and juice that, that product, that piece of technology, that innovation that you're asking the investors to buy into. And at the very early stages of the company, it's quite often that you know you don't have a huge amount of cash lying around to pay staff. And, and that kind of takes us very much into the realm of option schemes, which is the focus of today's show. And I think, Charlie, you know, we were speaking very early on about option schemes. And I think it was, you know, it was maybe a year or even two years later that we actually went and put one in place for you. But you and, and the founder team were very conscious of incentives for staff right, right from the very beginning, from my memory. Well, I have experience of actually leaving an early stage team. This was early in my career when I was sort of partially took a job that had high risk and relatively low pay because there was a, a conversation right at the beginning and I was employee number two of options and or shares um, in exchange. And, and they just sort of, for administrative reasons, never got round to it. Well, yeah, there were various reasons for leaving, but a year and a half later, I was kind of, I, I mentioned it when I left and was a bit, was kind of fed up about it. So Peter Martin and I knew right from the beginning that the options was a thing that we could offer. We couldn't necessarily offer high salaries, but we can offer options and flexibility and other other ways that, ways that people do their jobs. We agreed that it was going to be a 15% or up to 15% of the share capital, which is a relatively high or a very high percentage. And, and we, we haven't awarded anything like 15% of share capital, but the, the fact that we can is important and relevant for our team. And we, we finally got the scheme set up, I think about this time last year, but we'd probably have been having the conversations for well over a year and a half before that. It was more complicated to set up than I had realized. Um, it's, it's sort of set up in a very sort of legalistic -y sort of tax way, whereas trying to explain it to the team, their, their reaction often is, why can't you just give us shares? <laughs> yeah, They don't realize that there's a serious tax disbenefit for them of just being give, uh, given shares sometimes. So the, 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 one of the things that's been interesting for me since we've set it up is, is the variability in sort of appreciativeness between people that you give it to who might be very senior who understand exactly what's going on or people who have already received some and then have, and have had some time to think about it compared to people who have been given share options for the first time and might not have a, a very, very clear sense of what the hell hell this letter that they've been given is. I, I guess, you know, one of the things you touch on there is the fact that you have those tax considerations. You have the, the legal drafting and the structuring of the scheme. And then you have maybe some of the commercial variables that some people might be familiar with terms about whether an option is, is exit only or capable of exercise at, at a time prior to an exit, or there may be different vesting there may be different lapsing conditions. And I kind of view those as commercial variables that will change from company to company. The bit about the tax is quite important that giving shares to employees is not terribly tax efficient and, and looking for enterprise management initiative or EMI 
tax wrapper on your options is, is, is great from the employee's point of view because you're avoiding lots of income-related taxes and, and hopefully you get a preferable capital gains tax position at the end of the day. That's clear and very obvious to us as founders. We're very aware of our kind of, of, of tax positions and shareholding positions and all the rest of it. And it's clear and very obvious to, to employees once they start thinking about it. There's no getting away from it. If, if we were to just give shares at market value to our employees, that would be a taxable benefit. It would not be, it wouldn't just be a bad tax issue for them. They'd, they'd suddenly find themselves with a great big tax bill for it that, that they'd never signed up for, they didn't want. So once they start thinking about it, they get it. By no means all employees realize what an option scheme is when they start. And by no means all employees realize what an option scheme is when they're being given these options. There's a massive variability, put it that way, between how how that generosity is received in the short term. In the medium and long term, we hope it's serving its purpose, which is it's a balance of reward and encouraging retention. And, and that retention thing, it it's not going to it doesn't matter if it happens in the first month. It's it's in six months time or a year or three years time that you're wanting to keep hold of people who might be thinking about moving on and suddenly go away and realize that there's this options paperwork in a drawer that actually might have some really quite significant value if they if they stick at it that's an important point to remember when you're looking at and considering whether to buy in an option scheme and, and go and engage accountants and lawyers to, to prepare these sorts of things is is it understood sufficiently by the people receiving it to really be an incentive is it just because you want to do the right thing by the staff and, and it's actually some sense of founder altruism I found recently, quite interestingly, a client said, I've given a, a member of staff this, this option. It's very generous. And, you know, we really wish we, we maybe hadn't given them this option because they were just really not doing anything. They weren't performing. <laughs> and we, we drafted the option ourselves and it, it worked as an option, but, you know, it didn't have all these things that, you know, we could get out of it with, um, you know, clever legal clauses. And so we're stuck with it. And, you know, we were thinking we'd have to have this conversation with him about getting him to, to give it up. But when we told him what it was worth, overnight, he became our hardest working employee. This <laughs> and he was going 12 hour days, six days a week, because he could then actually appreciate, you know, if I get us from here to there, this is how much of that I get to take home. This is my slice of that cake. I'm going to make sure that's the best piece of cake possible. And he's just overnight turned into this fantastic employee so it's all about that communication it's all about that engagement it, it certainly is and that, and that communication is uh, Alex you you did a, a kind of non-legalistic briefing note for us to give to our, our first couple of options holders uh, which is great since actually we've got a new FD in and he he just sends a really simple paragraph from him saying this is what it's for this is this is your tax benefit and lays out if the share price is currently X and we've negotiated the options, the, the, the value with uh, HMRC of, of Y and it goes up to Z, this is what you'll be. Do we do it for altruistic reasons? Do we do it as a reward? Do we do it as retention? I think it's all of those things put together. And there's another one in there though, that there is certainly in our world, there's an expectation that a company might have something like this not from staff, but from investors, from partners, from whoever it is. 
that that's expected yeah, yeah. more from from in, from investors than from staff. I mean, that makes perfect sense, but it's well, it's so both. interesting. But in, yeah. investors look at it and they go, no, these guys are taking this stuff seriously. They're taking, we're a, a company that lives or dies by our people, by our ingenuity and innovation of the team. So we need to keep them on. We're getting to the point of recruiting senior director level staff. Those guys definitely do know that it's there. They're, they're mm. absolutely going to be aware of it. We couldn't be saying to them, oh, we intend to do it. It's a different thing saying we plan to do something to we have done it and it's in place. The gravitricity incentive, I don't think I'm giving anything away that's terribly top secret when I say that it was, you know, probably following a, a, a market trend that I see that is you set your vesting over a number of years. So it's a time-based vesting. You're, you're earning more of your option shares as you go. And that kind of applies equally across the whole workforce. There's not very particular individualized performance targets, sale targets. It's where it's very much, you know, we're all in it together. We're all going in the same direction as, as one group. Um, was there a particular reason why you favored that approach over having specific sales targets or finance targets or engineering milestones? An element of that is just wanting to keep it as simple as possible. The vesting requirements and or, or not are absolutely common across the company. And, and we, we, we want that to be the case. We don't want there to be individual milestones in there. That's also because the stage the company's at. If one person succeeds and another person completely fails, then we all completely fail at the end of the day. So we, we very much have a, a, an ethos of, of we're all in this together, but it would be strange in my head if we had a, an options mechanism or any other form of stuff support that was was based on individual milestones rather than collective milestones. I know there will be maybe a few eager listeners that are keen to know about what goes on sometimes in those Revcon meetings. And I think actually it changes from one company to the next and there actually isn't a, a fixed way of doing it. People have different methods and, you know, without getting too much into the detail maybe of, of how Gravitricity is doing it, what sort of approach did you take to looking into how you might make those considerations yeah it's a good question I, I kind of wish I knew wish I was listening into other people's versions of, it, <laughs> of this so what we do is is I am the I go and speak to line managers and and get a strong sense of the, the two elements for us is what's the contribution these guys have made so there is a strong element of reward probably stronger and then another the other half of it is what's the value of these people to gravitricity we do not take salaries into account that might reflect salaries it probably does um like more senior people get paid more and they're probably more valuable in the long term but it's not necessarily the case and then i what i did is, is i created a kind of table to try and make all of this work for my own purposes to get my head around it all rounded it provided that to peter and martin we have a great big discussion it gets moved around it gets changed we try and make it broadly speaking so that people have similar sorts of levels are getting similar sorts of awards there was definitely a, a sort of algorithm is far too strong a word but an equation to get or, or a table an excel table to get to a number then that was subjectively objectively adjusted and moved around by by the remcom um, and then that all gets gets finalized so i've no idea if that's how other remuneration committees work but we're a pretty small company so it can afford to be relatively 
rough and structured like that. But the subjective bit, I think, is extremely important. And that comes from particularly Martin's experience, having been on plenty of Remcoms through the, through the years of, of what works and what doesn't. And I mean, it's great you now have your finance director that's joined the company. Um, I guess that will make the, the administration of the options, um, particularly post-grant, a bit easier. You know, how are you as a company keeping up with the grants? Are you, are you keeping a spreadsheet of, of all the you know, fully diluted position for the share cap table? And how are you finding liaising with accountants and making sure that you're getting your filing done? Um, we've got a, a sort of one-man band account, accountant tax accountant specialist who we find very useful for sort of keeping us right on quite a lot of this stuff. Uh, the paperwork is definitely not my forte. So <laughs> when I was doing it, it made me nervous. I'm very pleased I can hand that over to somebody else to get on with it and just trust trust him to, to do it and be doing it. It's, it's one of these administrative aspects of whether you call it accounting or legals or HR. It's all kind of wrapped up together um, that as a company grows, gets more and more complicated. I'm keeping with the theme of, of the post-grant administration and picking up on, you know, your current fundraise. Unfortunately, you're not in a position where we can all talk about you changing the articles of association as part of your investment because you've done very well to negotiate your deal very early on with Crowdcube in, in, in an early raise. And, and actually that's afforded you the opportunity to just take in more money through that platform with some early uh, angel backers and you've not had to go through that process, which many companies do have to go through. And it mm. might be that, you know, a future investment round with a large institutional investor, you will. But for the benefit of some of our listeners, you know, we shouldn't forget that where the articles of association change and that affects the shares that are under option, you could always look at whether or not you need to make a notification to your option holders that, that rights have changed. And you might even need to write to the revenue for clearance if you're changing those rights uh, in a way that improves what the option holder originally got under the EMI scheme. So it's very careful to just, you know, to look at these things quite holistically whenever you're doing anything that affects the constitutional documentation of the company, because the option schemes are so wrapped up in that documentation. It's another reason, perhaps, why we didn't do options right at the beginning when we first started talking to you about it, Alex. It, the concept, the idea is very simple, but actually when you start putting it into operation, it's got it doesn't sit on its own independently. It has impacts elsewhere. Go into it knowingly is what I would say. And go into it with people you trust to hold your hand, I suppose, as well. And, and to carry on holding your hand. It's not just a matter of creating a paperwork. As a, as a founder, as an entrepreneur who's not the legal or accountant background, you can just ring someone up and say, hang on, what about this? Does It's as much to get, get rid of that sense of kind of ner legal nervousness that, can take up too much of your brain and stop you focusing on what you need to be focusing on and just just have comfort that everything is in order that's an important thing that maybe maybe sort of legal accountancy people don't necessarily appreciate that as as founders we're trying to do many many things juggle many many plates and you just want to be you don't want to be looking into the too much of the detail on all of these spinning plates you just want to be keeping them all in the air um, and that means having the professional advisors that you, you you know as humans as well as knowing as as professionals i suppose oh that's a, a beautiful statement because we're we're very conscious that we always get roped in when founders have to do something specific you know fundraising is a specific task setting up an option scheme is a specific task and all of it takes you away from the day job that you mm. really want to be getting on with 
But I guess that kind of leads us to a nice wrap up question. We always like to ask our guests for tips for any other founders or entrepreneurs who are listening to the podcast. What sort of tips would you give them in terms of option schemes generally? When is the best time to set it up? Is it during a fundraising? Is it early on? What sort of tips can you give our listeners? So, so a, an obvious one based on, on my personal experience, if you say you're going to do it, do it. Do say you're going to do it because it's, it's good. And then don't underestimate how much time and effort it takes. There's a certain amount of ongoing effort, which is absolutely fine once you're in a position to have retained accountants and lawyers and things. But when you're, when you're a very early stage startup without any of that and, and every penny is valuable, then it might be too early. So I, I don't know when the right moment is, but it's probably earlier than you think. And it probably takes a bit more time and effort than you realize. Those are all very good tips. So thank you so much, Charlie, for coming onto the show. Just before we end, we have just enough time to do our rapid fire round. Charlie, in one word or phrase only. On your mark, get set. Where did you go to school? Scotland and England. What's your favourite food? Curry. If you were having a dinner party and could invite three guests, alive, dead or fictional, who would you invite and why? Fidel Castro, Charles Darwin and uh, Muad'Dib, the guy, the hero of Dune. Nice choice. <laughs> Paul Atreides, I think. is Paul it? Atreides, that's the one. <laughs> Are you an Apple or an Android man? Uh, definitely Android. I've got an Apple phone now because it was the only small one available and I hate it with a passion. I've had it for two years. So <laughs> I'm too tight to get a new one until it, until it dies on me. And finally, if you were down to your last £10, where would you invest them? Oh, goodness knows, but gravitricity, obviously. <laughs> Get on the crowd cube. Get that money in. Well, exactly. The, 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 you, you, I needed £10.50 was the minimum investment on, in Gravitricity in the latest round. So I would maybe have to find somewhere else to put it. <laughs> Charlie, thank you so much for your time and participating in MBM's M&A Snack and Chat podcast. Thank you all for listening. And join us next time where we, we will be joined by another special guest and we will chat and snack all things M&A. Goodbye. Goodbye.